Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so very much for your goodness and your love and your mercy to us. What a joy it is just to serve Jesus Christ. We pray that your word might open up to us in a new and a fresh way tonight, that the reality of our Savior might be expressed beautifully in our own lives by the ministry of the Spirit of God. We pray that we might learn truly what it is to be a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, whom we love and serve. We'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Just a couple of words here, if we may, about uh, things coming up. Um, one of the things that we've been working diligently on uh, in reference to our ACT program, Adult Christian Training, is uh, so are some electives for Wednesday nights. And when we say electives, we will, as usual, always have um, the general Bible study available here for you. Uh, so, because we do have people that uh, come uh, come and go and uh, uh, can't be here all the time, or others that are visiting and so on, so we'll always have this. You don't have to worry about that aspect of it. But um, we are hoping that uh, in subsequent months we'll be able to begin offering uh, some elective type courses on Wednesday night, uh, similar to what we're doing on um, Thursday morning and on Wednesday morning, um, and. Uh, we are going to be beginning a class in the month of January, you'll be hearing more about it in subsequent days, um, that will be on church history, a church history course. It will require some real study and thinking and so on, and yet it will be something that I think uh, all of you can profit from. And uh, we're just suggesting that we'll, we'll have uh, sign-ups for those classes, and uh, we'll uh, be letting you know more about it later on. But we will be having this. Now, we'll continue... Uh, we've got several weeks yet on this particular aspect, this phase of our course on discipleship. And then the next phase will be a very practical phase. And um, we, what we'll be doing is talking specifically about how we can take a person from the point of salvation and uh, bring him to a measure of maturity in Christ, the basic essentials that you can use. And we'll be giving you notes as we have been all the way through this course. Uh, that will help you utilize tools as to passages of Scripture that you want to work through with a new Christian and so on. And uh, we'll be giving you some of those tools for several weeks after that before we begin on a different, uh, a different level. And so therefore, uh, we'll be continuing this. And I would just suggest to you that as the opportunities are offered, again, we are, going, we are planning at this point uh, to... Uh, to tape all of these classes so that they'll be available. Now that means then that that we can we can have um, uh, if you don't uh, if you go into the church history class you still can get the rest of this uh, on tape if you wish, and uh, the notes will be available to anybody who wishes them. And I think that uh, it's part of our ever expanding um, program for adults in particular and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And um, I think you're going to find some exciting things will be offered. Uh, one of the things that we, we very quickly, all of a sudden, it hit us, you know, is one of those things that's so easy to forget in our planning stage. We suddenly realize that if we're going to have all of these classes and we're going to record them all, we're going to have to do something about wiring in uh, microphones in all of the rooms in the new Christian Ed building. And so fortunately, we got in under the wire. And uh, we're going to be able to, um, to run all of these cables through uh, these various rooms and into a central recording area, which will be Eric's office. And uh, we'll be able to have one person record, you know, even four or five different classes all at the same time, which is going to be kind of nice. And those are just some of the things that are happening and because we're beginning to realize the great need and the great lack, really, that there is in uh, these various training courses that are available to us. We've got a lot of things going, and uh, since we're in the new year, it's a good time to talk about uh, what we're anticipating the Lord is going to do here. Now, as you know, we're talking about some things from the book of Acts relative to the matter of discipleship. Now, we have already observed in the Gospels how the Lord discipled men. And we saw some of the aspects of his discipleship. It certainly was not an easy thing at all. We also have made clear that discipleship is not where we call someone to follow our orders, but rather we call people to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We are trying not to make disciples of ourselves, 
but rather disciples of Jesus Christ, people who are followers of Christ, people who are learners from Him. And so that's the aspect of discipleship that we saw in the Gospels. And then in the book of Acts, we just have intensified this as we've shown that the disciples were not looking for personal followers, but were looking to disciple men to Jesus Christ, making disciples of all nations. And uh, so therefore, we have been looking at various aspects of discipleship, various things that were stressed in the early church in reference to discipleship and the way that men and women were discipled to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, tonight, we want to look at Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, we saw last time and finished up last time on the matter of discipleship relative to society, the relationship of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ to their society. They were first called Christians at Antioch, and we saw the implications of that title that was given to them. But now, here we want to look at discipleship and steadfastness, the relationship of steadfastness and stability for the believer as far as the disciples were concerned. Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 21, it says this, Nevertheless, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, that's when he, at Lystra, where Paul was stoned, and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, and to Iconium, and Antioch. Now notice what they did. Confirming the souls of the disciples, and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the key word in this passage, particularly in verse 22, is a word that uh, some of you will remember at least a portion of it. It's the word epi-sterizo. Sterizo was the key word in 1 Peter, you'll remember. It means to ground is on a foundation. The epi, the prefix, simply intensifies it. And it, uh, it really indicates, if you check it carefully, uh, that here Paul had gone through a crisis in his own experience where he had been stoned outside of Lystra. One of the reasons that he was stoned, you remember, uh, was because of the, of the uh, ministry that he had there and uh, the testimony that he had established, and thus they drew him out of the city and wanted to stone him. And uh, so now he returns to those very places, and uh, there seems almost to be an intensity in what he does. He had gone there, if you please, um, somewhat casually, I'm sure with the intensity that Paul always had, it wasn't really what we would consider casual, but he went there simply going to minister to them and, and uh, doing what he knew best. But now after he was stoned, he returned to those places and he really put them on a crash program of stabilization. He began to realize that this matter of persecution and so on was something that was very, very real and was very present among them. He also recognized that those that weren't stabilized could very easily be uh, slip their moorings in the tempestuous kind of atmosphere that they were going to experience. And so as a result, he went back and he put the pressure on and he put them to a place of stabilization in their own lives and their own experience. Just look at a couple of passages. Well, probably more than a couple. Uh, for, let's look first of all at 1 Peter 5. Now, we mentioned that when we studied 1 Peter, we saw that this is the key word in the book of 1 Peter. Peter was fulfilling his commission to stabilize the believers. And here in chapter 5 and verse 10, it says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, that is to render fit, established, there's the word sterizo, to ground is on a foundation, strengthen, which means to give power, and settle you, which means to lay a foundation. Now, what he's saying here then is that Peter, in this epistle, had a specific purpose. 
And it really amounts to the idea of grounding people in the Word. Grounding people because, especially, they were going to face great tribulation and trial. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 11. For I long to see you, Paul says, writing to these Roman Christians, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. There's our word, sterizo, once again. The reason that Paul had a desire to go to Rome was so that through the ministry of the spiritual gifts there might be the establishing of the believers there. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians, the third chapter. Verse 2. Uh, let's read verse 1 as well. Pick up the context. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Paul has moved south to Athens, and he has sent Timothy back uh, to these people. And sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to, here's the purpose for his going back, establish you, sterizo, and at the same time to comfort you, which is the, the word parakaleo, which is to call to the side, to render aid in time of need, uh, the same word that is used in our text here in Acts 14 as well, to comfort you concerning the faith. Why? That no man should be moved. Actually, that word, seno, which is used here, is a word that is used to speak of a dog wagging its tail. It's a word that, is, that means to agitate. And so therefore he says that no man should be agitated by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed to these things. Now notice again that the, the context of persecution, as it was in 1 Peter, as it is in Acts 14, as it is here in 1 Thessalonians, is very, very clear. Now 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. Under which he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brother, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God even our Father who hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation or comfort and good hope through grace, may that everlasting consolation, the comfort that comes to us, and the good hope, which is the confident expectation of the believer, through grace, may it comfort your hearts. There again is that idea of parakaleo, to call to the side, to render aid. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Sterizo, to establish, to ground as on a foundation. Look at Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 12. By the way, this is one of the rich passages. Chapter 1 of 2 Peter is a chapter you ought to memorize. It talks about the great and precious promises whereby we are partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption of the world is through lust. Besides this, add to your faith virtue. Give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. Virtue, knowledge, knowledge, experience. And then notice what it says. If these, verse 8, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now having said all that, he goes on then in verse 12 says, Wherefore, I would not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. I don't want you to ever forget these things. Keep them in mind. Why? Here's the purpose. Be remembers these things, though ye know them, and are established in the present truth. They had already been established. He wanted them to keep on being established by keeping on remembering that which had been done. And the word established again, sterizo. Look at James chapter 5. James, the fifth chapter, verse 8. Be also patient... Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth near. All right, now there's another basis upon which we are established, and that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one other passage, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, verse 23. 
And after he had spent some time there, this is early in his, uh, or just before he's embarking uh, from Antioch to the uh, third missionary journey, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went all and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order. What did he do? Sterizo, strengthening all the disciples. All right, now. You see, what we're faced with here is that in the early church, that a great priority of ministry, in addition to the preaching of the gospel and the ministering in a, in a personal work type of thing, as we've seen in the matter of soul winning in the disciple, there was a great emphasis upon this matter of taking people who already knew Jesus Christ and stabilizing them, particularly when persecution was pressing in. But also, even in times where things were good, he wanted to establish, and Peter wanted to establish, and James wanted to establish these believers in the things of the Lord. It's clear that God's Word and God's Holy Spirit gives high priority to the establishment and the stabilization of believers. It is simply a fact that it is never God's intention that Christians fall apart in a crisis. And I want you, want you to understand that if Christians fall apart in a crisis, it's not God's fault. Because God has given us everything that pertains to life and to godliness. And there is never a time where we need to be rattled by the opposition of the enemy, by persecution that may come in, by all kinds of conflicting kinds of circumstances, by uh, pressure, by the, the kinds of... of uh, attitudes that we face around us uh, by the, the crisis of a nation financially or the crisis of a family financially or, the, or the, the kinds of social problems that we're facing today of all people in the world that ought to be stabilized and on a foundation and unmoved are those who can sing as you sang tonight on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand. We have no business falling apart in a crisis. And I believe that the reason so many Christians are panicky and push the old proverbial panic button in almost every circumstance of life is because one reason, and I accept part of the blame for that, I think that, the, that pastors often have just failed to do their responsibility in establishing people through the preaching of the Word of God. We have failed in that regard. And secondly, the leadership of the churches, by and large, have failed to make this a priority. And further, people who are taught to be soul winners are generally not taught to then establish people in the faith. And they leave them like a ship without a sail, drifting aimlessly in the sea of life, without any, any direction or any purpose to that which they, they have uh, found in Jesus Christ. There needs to be a renewal of priority in this regard. We need to come to a new place of understanding of our responsibility to, if you please, confirm or strengthen or stabilize believers. Now you know that that's part of our burden here at Valley Church. We're not perfect in doing it, nor will we ever be. That'll come when Christ comes. He'll be perfect. But we're not. But we certainly want to be everything that God wants us to be in this age. And therefore, we want to be concerned and involved in the matter of these priorities that Scripture has laid before us. It's interesting to be able to go through a list like that on one single Greek word and realize that though there are many words that are equivalents of this idea, and many instructions specifically in regard to this idea of strengthening believers. The, the very fact that we can turn to that many passages of Scripture with this one Greek word, sterizo, indicates the great priority that God has in this matter. And we should not rest until we have brought to a place of stabilization every believer who is brought under our care. 
whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a leader in the church or whether you're just a person who occasionally has the privilege of leading others to Christ or leading a Bible study where you work or any of these other things, any person committed to your care, you should not be pleased and not be satisfied until every single one of those people are brought to a place of stabilization in Jesus Christ and not quickly loosed from their moorings by every wind of doctrine that flies around. That's a big priority. Well, now, let's look at Acts 14 just a little bit. In order to get the picture, though, let's go back to Acts 13. In Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, Paul and Barnabas have been chosen and commissioned. In chapter 13, verses 4 through 12, as you follow through, they left Antioch and came to Seleucia and then to Salamis and Cyprus, and then to Paphos on the other side of Cyprus on this missionary journey. And at Paphos, Paul rebuked Bar-Jesus, a false prophet and a sorcerer. And then when you come to the 13th verse of the 13th chapter, and going through the 50th verse, you see him leaving Paphos, going to Perga and Pamphylia, and then to Antioch in Pisidia. When you come to the 51st verse, after there's been some very interesting ministry in those places, you see that he arrives in Iconium, and the Jews resist, and many Gentiles believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the plot is discovered to stone them, and so they leave the city. And in Acts chapter 14, verses 6 through 20, you see that Paul preached in, in Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia, and the citizens of Lystra were so impressed with Paul's miracle that uh, they wanted to sacrifice to him as a god. Now that, of course, the refusal of that worship really precipitated the breaking out of the persecution. Actually, in Lystra, there was a great legend. Uh, they believed that Zeus and Hermes came to Lystra and that uh, no one would give them hospitality except for two old peasants and uh, a man by the name of Philemon and his wife Bacchus. And so the gods wiped out the population of that city except for these two who were made guardians of the temple. And uh, when, they had, when they died, they, uh, they turned, according to their legend, into two great trees which stood by the temple. And uh, the the people thinking in terms of this, then seeing Paul and Barnabas coming into the city and performing a miracle, they thought, oh boy, we don't dare do this, make the same mistake twice. If this happens to be Zeus and Hermes again, and we don't give them hospitality, they'll wipe us all out except for two trees next time around too. And so therefore, they were ready to accept them as gods. Now, they were ready to accept them as gods, but they were not ready to accept them as the apostles of the one living and true God. And the result was that when they refused the worship and admitted that they were not Zeus and Hermes, then they wanted to stone them. Now, in Acts 14, verses 20 and 21, as we read, they left and they went to Derbe, and then they... they uh, they came, went to Antioch in verses 21 through 28, and a report was given, and the mission was primarily evangelism and church planting. In the 15th chapter of Acts, and verses 1 through 35, there was a council at Jerusalem. Remember, the issue was over Judaism. And then in Acts 15, verses, verse 36 through 16 and verse 5, Paul decides to revisit the churches to determine their progress. And in chapter 15, verse 41, it says this, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming, sterizo again, the churches. Now look over at Acts 16 and verse 5. And so were the churches established. Now, you see, he went there to establish the churches, and now were the churches established. It was as simple as that. When Paul set his mind to do something in the power of God's Holy Spirit, uh, then it was accomplished. And what happens? The churches were established in the faith and increased in number daily. By the way, that's the key to church growth. There's no better way to see people come into the fellowship of a church than for the believers who are in that church 
to be stabilized in the faith. It becomes infectious in the society like the salt of the earth and the light of the world when believers are able to be calm in the face of crisis. So it's a very important thing, and that's one reason why, incidentally, the philosophy that we have of ministry, when people ask us about church growth, is to establish and equip every believer that we possibly can who is under our care. And that's our philosophy of church growth. People say, well, don't you want to have big mass campaigns to get people, draw people in, and door-to-door knocking and trying to invite people and big busing programs and all the rest? No, we have no desire for that. We've got plenty of people that God has committed to our care. If he adds to that number, we'll have that many more committed to our care. We'll continue to try to, to produce healthy sheep, and when sheep are healthy, they reproduce. And that's a philosophy of ministry. It's a philosophy of church growth. It's a simple philosophy, but nevertheless, I believe it's a biblical philosophy. And when believers are established, when the church is established in the faith, then others come to know Jesus Christ. Now, that's the background, then, of this, this whole matter of establishment. Now, I want to see two things, really, in this text. I want you to see, first of all, the necessity of this ministry in Acts 14, and then, secondly, the nature of that ministry. I believe that will kind of help keep our focus correct here. The necessity of this ministry, the seeking after steadfastness, is simply uh, that there must be adequate follow-up on those that come to Christ for a number of reasons. One is because persecution is a problem. We've alluded to that already. Look at Antioch again, if you will, in chapter 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, that is, the whole city come together to hear the word of God, can you imagine now? There's, there's, this is a real move of the Spirit of God. The whole city come together to hear the word of God. And the Jews saw the multitudes. They were filled with envy. Envy is zulo, which is a feeling of displeasure at another's success. They were just plain jealous. And they spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming them. The hostility, the hostility I should say, was now directed toward them. Look at Iconium in Acts 14 and verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil-affected or literally embittered against the brethren. There again, we see the beginning of persecution. It's fulfilled in verse 5 where it says, And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. And so there was actually the attempt to stone them there. Then look at Lystra. In verse 19, <coughs> and there came there certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. They had been the other places, and they had uh, thrown their stones but missed. And now they come to uh, Lystra, and they find, they find uh, the people ripe for persecution here as well. It says they persuaded the people. And having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Now there are some people that believe Paul did die. Uh, there's really no proof of that. Some people believe that he died here, that that was the time where he was caught into the third heaven where he saw things that were unlawful to repeat. Some people believe that what was affected after that was a resurrection. If it wasn't a resurrection, at least it was a remarkable recovery. We know that for certain. Anybody that had, you know, they didn't stone him with little pebbles. We think stoning, you know, we think of these little tiny rocks. They used boulders. And they literally covered them over with boulders. They would take them with both hands, and they would throw them and uh, strike the person down. And then after they were struck down, they would take boulders, and they would just keep throwing them on him until, of course, there's a little heap of boulders there, and he's already buried. And that really is the way they would just leave them, outside the city. But they would stone them. And the Apostle Paul was left for dead. And so it could be that he died and rose again. But even if he wasn't dead, the recovery was remarkable because he got up and walked back into that city. So God spared him in a unique and special way. 
But you see, the, the stoning came then in Lystra. And then again, verse 22, he went, he went back confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must, through much tri- uh, tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Now there's the first reason why believers need to be established. There is always the possibility of persecution. Remember when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I contend that if we do not suffer persecution to some degree or another, it is because we are not living godly in Christ Jesus. Because God has said through his apostle to Timothy that indeed if we do live godly in Christ Jesus, standing for the truth of God's word, we can anticipate and expect persecution. Now some of you experience that in a mild form where you work, where you go to school. Some of our young people face this kind of pressure as they go to school. We must realize that if we do not stabilize our young people and stabilize our laymen and stabilize our housewives, that any amount of persecution is liable to cause them to move from their moorings. And we definitely need to realize that the persecution that we face in this country is nothing compared to what we could face 10 years from now. And you see, that is too late, too late to equip people, too late to stabilize people. And a day like that, we cannot uh, possibly get everybody together and teach them all they know to have maximum stabilization in a time of drastic persecution. We can try, and there have been times of persecution where this has happened, but you know, I've always been interested in reading concerning the, the martyrs and con, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs and Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs, uh, the, the stories that are told concerning some of the persecution during World War II and this sort of thing. There was a lot of people who just crumbled under the pressure because of this kind of, this lack of stabilization. And it it, it seemed as though there was only a minority of people who could be stabilized in the midst of the crisis. Those that weren't stabilized before weren't stabilized, period, to the great degree. So there needs to be real intense teaching and learning now. I, I can recall, you know, a deacon's meeting where um, I was suggesting something like this in the process of things, and I, I was saying, you know, how much Scripture do we know? If they took our Bibles away from us, could we reconstruct from memory the vast amount of the Word of God? How much would we be able to recall so that we could put it back in writing for our own use. And one of the, one of the deacons, kiddingly, uh, said, well, pastor, we hope maybe that we'll be in the same cell with you, so that because uh, you know the scripture. And you know, that's, that's humorous, but at the same time, think of it. Think of the odds. What chance do you think you have? I'm going to be first one they kill, okay? So therefore, that's going to leave you without me. And so my memories may not do you much good. What are you going to do? What are you going to be able to reconstruct in the way of real hope for the believer by memory? Because you've hid the Word of God in your heart. And you know your memory is bad enough as it is. Can you imagine trying to memorize vast portions of Scripture when the persecution starts? Now is the accepted time. Now's the time to get this into your heart and into your mind. When Peter wrote his epistle, he said that you are to arm yourselves with this same mind the mind of Jesus Christ. You're to arm yourselves. And the word that he used is the word hoplos. Hoplos is the word from which we get the Greek expression of a hoplite soldier. The hoplite soldier was the green beret of the Greek army. He was the one who was the best equipped and the best trained. And we as believers are to be like hoplite soldiers in the spiritual realm, arming ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and all of the rest of the armor of God. We are to be equipped. And if we're not equipped, when the pressure is on, look out. All right? There's a reason for establishing people. A second reason for establishing people is because... 
of the pagan misunderstanding of the gospel. We alluded to this a moment ago, but let's look at it in the 8th verse of chapter 14. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent at his feet, being a cripple from his birth, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of the Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, who would be Zeus, the king of the gods, and Paul Mercurus, which is Hermes, the god of speech, because he was the one that did all the talking, because he was the chief speaker, as it says in the text. Then the priest of Jupiter, whose temple was before their city, brought oxen and garlands onto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they tore their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, who made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all things that are in them. By the way, notice that he started, like Romans 1 tells us to, with people who had no background in the gospel of Christ. These were Gentiles, they were pagans, they were idol worshippers, and he began by talking about the, the, the natural proofs of God. He talked about creation and moved from that base into the gospel. Very, very shrewd witnessing here. Who in times past allowed all nations to walk in their, in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these say, sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. They had a hard time convincing this pagan bunch that idolatry was not the way to go. Now, mind you, we live in a secular society. When will we ever learn? That's exactly what it is. Francis Schaeffer calls it a post-Christian era. It certainly is that. We are filled with humanism, with rationalism, with the all kinds of isms, and all of them are contrary to the Word of God. We live in a pagan, idol-worshipping society. The idols that we worship now are not much different than the ones the Greek, Greeks worshipped. The idol of nature, the various idols involved in nature, the idols of materialism, material things, the idols of, uh, of, of physical beauty, the idols of uh, great prestige and honor and fame and wealth. They had names for them. They had names of gods for all of these things, and they worshipped them. We don't have the names of the gods, but we still have the gods. They haven't changed. We live in this society. How in the world are we ever going to penetrate that society unless we as believers in Christ are stabilized in the Word of God? Unless we know the arguments, unless we know what the Word of God teaches, so that we're not easily shaken by these false winds of doctrine that fly from every hand. It's one of the things, of course, that really burdened our hearts when we were in Scotland. Because so many of the people just have no understanding of the concept of uh, cults as an example. They've never been taught. They've never been trained. And one pastor, looking me square in the eye, said that there, he said, there's a group of Mormons that have come into our community. They certainly seem to be nice young men. They're Mormon missionaries. They've infiltrated the churches. He says, some of my elders have been studying with them. And he said, somehow or another, there are a few things that don't seem to ring true. I oh, my goodness. I mean, this is a pastor of a church that, that supposedly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is supposedly committed, as the scripture says, to the task of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. It breaks my heart. And I talked to him earnestly, and I got a letter from him after, uh, since we've been home, just the other day. 
and uh, requesting some more information. He's trying to study it out and see if he can't head this thing off. He suddenly realizes this is a diabolical danger. But the people, if they're not stabilized, they fall for this, this business. Our young people, if they're not stabilized, they go off to college, and what happens? Why, the, the very first thing that happens is they try to undermine their faith. I know a professor in a Midwest school, science professor, who stands up every year before his freshman class, and he tells them, how many of you believe in God? And nearly every single young people in that group, yes, we believe in God. And then he tells them, when this year is finished, none of you will believe in God. Guess what? He's got a great record of accuracy. Now that happens. It doesn't happen in every science class in every university. You never know when it's going to happen. It would almost be better if it did happen in every science class in every university. Then at least you would know specifically what to tell the young people to, to refute that. It comes in, in blatant ways. It comes in subtle ways. And if we fail to stabilize people today, you as parents, if you fail to stabilize your young people, they are going to fall for those gags. Because we live in that kind of a society. Don't ever think that the United States of America is the friend of God. Any more than, than the, the government of China. The people in China. And that doesn't mean that there aren't Christians involved in politics. Of course there are. That doesn't mean that there isn't a certain influence because of the tremendous churches that we have across this country. Of course there's an influence. And there's a restraining factor to some degree. But let me tell you something. If under a restraining factor things could be so bad, can you imagine what it would be if some of that restraining factor were removed, and believe me, it's being removed. Because the Christians have lost their savor in many areas, in many places. The influence of the church upon the schools has almost nil these days. And that's what our young people are being exposed to. Is it any wonder that they turn from these things? They did this a number of years ahead of us. So Europe is generally ahead of us. And in the land of Sweden, they have long since done away with most of the biblical principles. In fact, did you know that in Sweden today, it is illegal to spank your child? It's against the law. You want to know something else? Sweden has the highest teenage suicide rate in all of the world. Isn't that interesting? You study the scripture and you find that God actually says that that's what's, what's going to happen. A child left to himself will bring his mother shame. Now this is the kind of thing that we're facing in our country now that has been going on in other countries for a long, long time. The more freedom, so-called, that is given to people sexually and a lot of other ways, the more frustration there is because man was never built by God to try to live that way. He was built to live in fellowship with God and the further he gets away from that, the worse off he is. And so the result is we need to have stabilization because the pagan concepts of what is required for salvation and all the rest of it are so warped. And then the third reason that there had to be stabilization here was the problem with legalism. In Acts chapter 15, in verse 1, notice what happened. And certain men who came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. It takes a, it takes a very special, stabilized people to avoid the two extremes. Paganism on one hand, and on the other hand, legalism. Turning to those things for merit with God that can give no merit with God. I can't get into the subject of legalism tonight. Other than just to say that Christ has given us tremendous freedom in Christ. But in that freedom, there are boundaries. There are certain things that we must not do. Just because there, is, there are things that we must not do does not mean we are legalistic. 
If I choose under God's grace and to His glory to do certain things or not to do certain things, it is strictly that, to His glory, whether I eat or drink or refuse to eat or drink. That's to His glory. I cannot impose that standard on you unless it's specifically spelled out in Scripture. But there are a lot of things that are spelled out in Scripture. And if you obey what the Scripture says, it does not make you legalistic. But the person who puts the restraint on others that is not a biblical restraint is indeed legalistic. God never indicated to a people under grace, the church of Jesus Christ, Gentile or Jew, that he had to be circumcised. That was a right that had its own place. But that place had been fulfilled. And the thing that God was trying to convey through the circumcision of the flesh was the need of a circumcised heart. When a person came into right relationship with Jesus Christ, his heart was circumcised. He was brought into a holy place. He was a part of a peculiar people, a holy nation set apart for the work of God. He did not need to go through that physical rite any longer. It was totally unnecessary, superfluous to the church of Jesus Christ. And it required stabilized men to step into that arena and bring forth the truth in that regard and then to broadcast that truth to the Gentiles everywhere. There had to be a stabilization so that people were not moved away from the truth of the Word of God. All right, now the same thing is true today. And there are all kinds of people in both camps. There are some people that, oh, if you do that, if you don't do that, then you're legalistic. Or if you do that, you're legalistic. And then on the other hand, there are people who say, they're saying, don't be legalistic. Just do everything you want to do. Even though the scripture says, don't use your liberty for an occasion for the flesh. And so you see, there, there's, a, there's the three things that are involved in this particular scene that give to us three pretty good reasons to stabilize believers today. Number one, because of persecution. Number two, because of the pagan climate in which we live, which is contrary and antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, because of legalism, which would put people back under a bondage of law rather than understanding and living under the system of grace. Those are some good reasons. And those reasons are valid today because the same thing is true today. Now, that then has to do with the need. Now, let's notice the nature of of this seeking after steadfastness. Now, first of all, in verse 22, notice the words that are used. There's the word episterizo, the intensive word for sterizo to ground us on a foundation, confirming the souls of the disciples, grounding these people in the word of God. Supporting this, let's look over at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 22. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature that is under heaven, of which I, Paul, am made a minister. Notice, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached. Grounded and settled. We need to be those that, are, that, that have a foundation under us in the word of God. Then look back at Acts 14 again and see, secondly... In verse 22, it says, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them. There again is that word, uh, uh, the, the word for the, the Holy Spirit, which is the, who is the comforter, paracletes. And uh, it's the word parakaleo, which is the verb form. And uh, it's the idea of standing by to render aid in time of need. It's the idea of a defense attorney, someone who comes to the side, rallying to the need of another. It also has in it the idea of urging others 
to, to a course of action, called to the side to urge others to a course of action. And so it's the idea of encouragement, the idea of comfort. It has a whole range of things involved. But what specifically are they to be encouraged to do? They are to be encouraged to continue in the faith. Now, the faith, with a definite article, speaks of that body of doctrine. Mind you, when we talk about confirming people in the Word of God, we are talking about the, the specific things that have to do with practical living, etc., in the Christian life all related to doctrine. When we're talking about continuing in the faith, we are talking about doctrine. We are talking about the aspect of sound teaching, sound doctrine. The word for doctrine is didaskalos, which is the word also for teaching. The two are correlated. You can call it Bible doctrine. You can call it Bible teaching. There really is no difference except in the expression in English. In the Greek, it's the same word. And it has to do with a system of doctrine. It's not merely a matter of a person understanding a doctrine, the faith has to do with a system of doctrine. It has to do with an understanding of systematic theology, if you want the technical term for it. It has to do with the idea of a person understanding the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of, of eschatology and ecclesiology, all of these various, various categories of doctrine. Now, there are many, many, many categories of doctrine in Scripture. And they needed to be encouraged to continue in those things as they came to them. Then, in addition to confirming and exhorting, there needed to be a teaching concerning the nature of the Christian life. Acts chapter 14, verse 22 again says that we must, notice the must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that word tribulation is a word you ought to have in your mind. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Thlipsis. Thlipsis is a word that means literally a pressing. Let me give you the background of thlipsis again. How many of you know it already? Well, a couple of you learned. We'll go again. You'll remember it after I start. They used to have a means, a way of torturing people in the ancient world. It was called thalipsis. What they did was they took stones and laid it on the chest of a man. For instance, they were trying to get to confess to being a spy. They'd lay a stone on his chest and ask him, All right, you're going to tell us. And he'd give his name, rank, and serial number. So they'd take another stone and lay it on his chest. He'd give his name, rank, and serial number. He'd put another stone on his chest. This time it broke the ribs. And then they'd ask him again. He'd give his name, rank, and serial number. They'd take another, put it on his chest. And that would break a bunch of other bones. And every time they added stones, it broke more bones until the life was crushed out of the man. This was thalipsis, oppressing. You must, through that kind of pressure, enter into the kingdom of God. The nature of the Christian life is such that it cuts across the grain of the world and persecution results. And the pressure is on. And so you need to understand that that is a part of what's involved in being a Christian. And when the world puts the squeeze on, think Philipsis. That you must, by much pressure, enter into the kingdom of God. It's absolutely essential. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, unto such we are called, speaking of persecution. That's why Peter spoke of suffering according to the will of God. It's God's will that we suffer. And so on and so on and so on. The word of God tells us this. Peter makes it clear that the, uh, that the, uh, the pressure, the, the much tribulation that you face, the, he says, don't, uh, don't think some strange thing has happened to you when fiery trials are to, which are to try you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. And then he talks about the glory which will be revealed hereafter. 
Solipsis, pressing down, crushing the life out of you. And there are times where you'll feel just like that emotionally, if not physically. The very life is being crushed out of you and you wonder how much you can take. But remember, Christ says, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be not afraid. I have overcome the world. The world may take the life out of your body, but it can't touch your soul. The pressure is on. The very nature of the Christian life is such that we should seek after this kind of steadfastness. Over in Philippians chapter 1, there's a verse. Philippians 1, verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, it's an indication how lost they really are, how depraved, And away from God they are, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And Paul says, I'm living proof of it. All right, so confirming, exhorting, teaching the nature of the Christian life, particularly as it relates to suffering. And then verse 23 of this same passage, Acts 14, says this, And when they had ordained elders in every church, you need to build leadership so you can ordain leadership so that the church is left with leadership. Stabilized leadership in the local church. A desperate need. And then finally, there is the... Well, I guess I've got two more. I just looked at my last page. I thought I had one. I'll give you both of them. Acts 14, 23, the last part, it says, And had prayed with fasting, had prayed with fasting. There must be the teaching concerning prayer. It's one of the parts of the stabilization of believers. You confirm them in the Word of God. You exhort them in the area of of systematic theology. You teach them the nature of the Christian life in a very practical base as it relates to the matter of suffering and pressure. You ordain leadership so that they're not left without shepherds. And then you, you set an example of prayer and fasting so that they understand that which is so important. And I could go on and on and on about what the Scripture says about the subject of prayer and the importance of it. Needless to say that Paul said in First Thess and the fifth chapter, pray without ceasing. That he said in Ephesians chapter 6, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all, thank, all thanksgiving for all saints. And so on and so on and so on. All the way through the Word of God, we have the exhortation to ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The concept of prayer, importuning God, laying upon Him in a real way for prayer. And then finally... One more thing. He committed them into God's hands. They commended them to the Lord. You know what the word is? The word is a word that simply means to put a deposit in the bank. Uh, Para para tithemi. And it means simply to put a deposit into the bank, paras beside, to lay beside or to put, to put beside. The idea of depositing something in the bank. Remember Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've deposited with him against that day. You remember that the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2 It tells us that rather than when he was reviled, he reviled not again, but committed himself, deposited himself to God as you would treasure in a bank, knowing that God does all things well. And I think that we need to understand that there comes a time and a place where those that have been ministered to then are committed, are committed to the Lord. You see, the teacher of the Word of God, be he ever so good, can only do so much. You can become like the Dead Sea, where you take in all of these things, and they really amount to nothing as far as any value. 
because you become stagnant. Or you can become like the mighty river where the word flows in and then is worked out through your life and it remains fresh always. Those that take in gnosis, knowledge, understood, and only gnosis, become spiritual fatheads. You want facts? You can get them. Here's a doctrine. Tell me what you believe about the doctrine of God, and you can pinpoint it. Give me all of the essence of God, give me all of His working, etc., etc. Theology proper. You can spill it out. How nice that you can repeat it. The fact that you believe that God is omnipotent, or the, I should say the fact that you know theologically that God is omnipotent, is absolutely of no value to you unless you're experiencing the power of God in your own personal life and victory over sin. When you see the omnipotence of God and you say, that's for me, then gnosis becomes epignosis, or full knowledge, and that goes beyond a matter of intellectual understanding and apprehension. It comes to the place where there is, a, there is a, a practical outlet for it in your life. Instead of being a spiritual fathead, you become a person who is putting into practice the reality of what the Word of God says and applying that in your everyday experience in life so that every part of your theology, every part of your doctrine, every part of the practical teaching of the Word of God becomes yours because you have not only experienced it intellectually, but because you've lived it out in your life. And that's what God wants. We've got too many people who just take it in. But you see, that's something I can't do. I can stand here and yell my head off trying to convince you of a doctrine, and if I convince you, praise God, but that's as far as I can go. If you're to make it become epinosis, you have to act in faith upon it and live it out through your life. And God, in the power of His Spirit, will allow you to do that very thing, to act upon what you know. That's why the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. But you dam it up. Dam up the river and back up the waters so that they become a stagnant pool when you do not allow the Spirit of God to live the Word of God through your life. That's why we have so many smelly Christians around. Like Lazarus. We can't take the gravestone off because he stinks. Boy, I'll tell you, there's, I've known some Christians like that. And yet Christ could step to that gravestone, move it, and say, Lazarus, come forth. You ever think of it? Lazarus came forth, bound, hand and foot. What did Christ say? Loose him. Christ raised him from the dead, but it took the involvement of people to loose him from his bonds. There had to be a practical application. Seeing a dead body wrapped up in bandages hopping around wouldn't have been a very pretty sight. Somebody had to set him free. Christ set him free from death, but he wanted the practical application of faith as far as the people were concerned. And God wants the same thing today. And so they came to the place where after they'd done what they could, they committed them to the hands of God. What's the result? Chapter 16, verse 4. And when they went through the cities and delivered them the decrees to keep that were ordained of the prophets and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Same place, but because they'd done a job of grounding them, sterizo, upon a foundation. The result was that they were grounded upon a foundation, and God gave them a great increase. My concern for you, my concern for Valley Church, is exactly that. Twofold. First of all, that I, as the pastor, might do everything he can to ground you. Secondly, that you will make it a priority of your life to seek to ground others under whom, over whom God has given you 
a responsibility. Grounding people. What a solid foundation Christ is. But when the church is a solid foundation on the solid foundation because of stabilized believers who are grounded as on a foundation, there isn't an earthquake in the world that can shake us. Let's trust him for that very thing. New subject next time. Oh, next time we've got a special time. Don Ashleman will be here next week and ministering to us from South Africa. And the following week we'll get back to our study. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for goodness and love. Lord, I'm so thankful that your word was given as a sharp-edged sword, piercing even to my very soul, the soul of these my friends. I thank you so much that you have even tonight convicted us, each one, of what we are to do and be to the glory of Christ. Bless, we pray, this group of people. We know that they're here because they desire to be stabilized. We pray that they may see that dramatic result of no longer being shaken by every wind of doctrine, rather being able to stand upon the truth of your precious word. Grant to us, Lord, even tomorrow, the opportunity to share with others the reality of our Savior. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.